you would, take your Bible, open it to 1 John chapter 5, yet again. So we have been here in 1 John for some weeks now. Why? Why don't we just move on with it, Jay? Um, I want to remind you this morning, why not? Uh, why it is that we would stick at this verse for so long. Um, and to be honest with you, I think I've shared this with you as somewhat of a surprise to me. I had intended to move on as well, but I realized so much that here we have the winsome, older apostle who is poetic in his writing, and he's trying to strengthen the church, and he ends with this encouragement that we read in verse 21, let little children keep yourself from idols. It's just a mesmerizing statement if you really think about it and you really have a right interpretation of it. Because here, here is John, and he knows that the church is hurting. He knows that in this particular context, the church has gone through one of the biggest church splits of all church splits. Um, this is a good, solid text to make an argument that the church has always been thoroughly Baptist. I had a family member one time tell me, I think that you know, if you give, the, if you give Baptist anything, they can split over something in time. And part of that's because we love the truth and we're willing to, to debate it. We always need to bring the temperature down, though, in those conversations, I think. But here, John has written that there are those who have gone out from among us because they are not of us. The, the church really hadn't split. The church was purified uh, because false professors had left the congregation. Um, and, and, and ultimately, the reason they had left is because they were following false teachers. That There were these people who said they were called of God, but what they were teaching was dividing the church. And the Bible tells us that that is going to be a compounding problem all throughout church history. That there are going to be people who rise up and because of their own passions and their own desires, teach things that God has never instructed them to teach. And so here we find the church beleaguered, Weary, probably somewhat confused and disoriented. And John writes, for one reason. And that is that they would know that they are in the faith and that they would be strengthened by having known that reality, which is what verse 13 says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And you remember the, the composition. I know we've been away from this for a while, so I just want to bring back the, the four really uh, substantive questions that if you were bo to boil down John's letter, what he's asking them is, in testing your faith, ask yourself, do you love God? Do you love His church? Do you love the truth in theology and doctrine? And do you guard the commandments of Almighty God? Do you, do you rest in the reality of knowing that God is working in an increasing way in those four things in your life? Love for Himself, love for His church, love for the truth, and a guarding of the commandments 
of God. You see, John is this great comparative teacher. He's dealt with truth and error, light and darkness, lawlessness and righteousness, hate and love. And as he concludes here in verse 21, and he encourages us not to to be taken in idolatry, he's really by implication giving us another comparative analysis. And that is this. Friends, you are in one or two veins in every action that you take in life. You are either worshiping the living God or you are idolizing a creation that is broken. Which one's it going to be? One will lead to life. The other will lead to death. John John had it down understanding that that the way to teach was by comparison. And, And in these comparisons, there's not a middle way. It's kind of like the C.S. Lewis axiom about our Lord that Christ is either Lord, lunatic, or liar. He either is who He claims to be. He is a lunatic, I think C.S. Lewis says, on par with a poached egg. With a man who says he's a poached egg, sorry. Thank you. Um, Or he's just flat out lying. Uh, but there's not a middle ground. And that middle ground, isn't that what most people take? He was just a good man. He had some good positive things. He wanted to make us more moral. No, he didn't. No, he wanted to redeem us. So again, here John is teaching us we're either idolizing or we are worshiping. And the issue of loving God, loving His church, His truth, and keeping His commandments ultimately boiled down to one simple question. And that is, do you know and do you worship the living God. It's interesting how verses 13 and verse 21 in this passage really go hand to hand. As he begins, I'm writing that you may know that you have eternal life. And if you know, then you ultimately are going to be true worshipers in spirit and in truth of the living God, not idolaters in an increasing fashion. So we come today to consider this yet again, who is the living God? Would you stand and do honor to the reading of God's Word with that in mind? John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God, I write these things to you, verse 13, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that have been asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son. Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence 
acknowledging the weight of your holiness and aware of our own depravity. And those things only by the working of your Spirit. Father, have you, had you not written to us and revealed yourself to us as compassionate and loving and wise, those two truths would be crushing. We would be left without hope. And yet you've sent your Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to live perfectly in our place. And those who believe upon his name will have everlasting life. So Father, in this time and under the weight of this text, would you mold all of our hearts for your glory and to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm afraid that we have been left often in the teaching of who the living God is with nothing more than a God who loves in a way that He never changes us, a God who is never confrontational, who exacts no justice because He's not against anything, and the only reason for which He exists is so that we can feel better about ourselves. I'm afraid that that's a distillation of the teaching of who the living, who the, who the living God is from most modern pulpits. But friends, that's not the description that the Bible gives of the triune God. I want to turn in our study back to a text that we walked through some time ago. You'll remember these words as Paul encourages us to put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Those are weighty words, aren't they? What's he talking about here? Well, in some sense, he's directing us that it is only in Christ that we can have victory. It is only in Christ and putting on Christ, which is an analogy of the armor that we have in being saved and, and applying Christ's saving work. Ultimately, it is only in Christ that we can have victory. And some would come and they would ask, saved from, from what? What is it that we are to stand against in the evil day? And the answer can be found in what really Paul is drawing from in Isaiah chapter 59 uh, as he leans into this language. Um, he put on, verse 17 of Isaiah 59, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. He's saying... This one has come who has put on all of these things for us. And so, if we are to stand and have victory, we must stand in the armor that He and He alone has won. But here, in saying, encouraging us to put on Christ, He goes on to say that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. And the question is, what is he talking about? What evil day? 
He says something similar in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And having, excuse me, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And the answer to what he's talking about, and I think we've talked about this before, is what in church history has commonly been referred to as the dies irae in Latin, or the day of wrath. The day that the church, until we started putting on potlucks and entertaining people, kept their focus on. You see, the church throughout the centuries, friends, have not lived in light of the offerings, in light of what we wear to church, in light of the political nonsense in our culture, in light of all the things out there or that we can contrive in here, the church has longed for this day called the day of judgment. The day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. But you see, moderns are far too sensitive to talk about this particular issue to talk about the wrath and the judgment of Almighty God. You, you see, Isaiah, when talking about the one who put on righteousness, he doesn't just stop there, but he goes on further in verses 18 and 19. According to their deeds, so will he repay. There's this picture that Christ comes for his people and he puts on the armor and he fights the fight and he has won the victory, but then... He is also going to deal with the enemies of His people according to their deeds. So will He repay wrath to His adversaries, repayment to His enemies. To the coastlands He will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. For He will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. He gives this picture of the awesome wrath of God. So the question is, what is the wrath of God as we consider that we should not formulate idols of, in our mind of who Jesus is, but lean into what the Scriptures teach about Him? What is the wrath, wrath of God? Well, first, we have to understand it's the best news for us, but it is the worst news for the world that is apart from Christ. The world doesn't want to hear about it, they want to mock the wrath of God. They laugh about it. They ignore it. And why? Because if you're going to live a life for yourself, in accordance with your own flesh, for your own purposes, and for your own glory, the wrath of God opposes all of those things, and it's bad news. The, the odd thing, friends, isn't that there are some people in the world that oppose talking about the wrath of God. That's not surprising. That's logical. What is surprising is that there are many people inside the church that say this is an inappropriate thing to really think about and, 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 and camp on. But that's not true because for us, it is great news. Because ultimately, God is going to deal with all of His enemies. And the Bible is not silent it doesn't whisper about the wrath of God. We, we see God's wrath in judgment throughout the entire redemptive narrative. Sodom and Gomorrah, Jonah. I mean, on and on and on, we see the reality of the wrath of God. Someone mentioned that, that, that the wrath of God is referred to 470 different times throughout Scripture. So let's read all of them this morning. I'm kidding. 
I think I would receive wrath if I tried to do that. The Hebrew word to answer the question, what is the wrath of God, really denotes a physiological, that is a physical response to something that is offensive. The, the, the word here is translated in many different uh, English glosses. It's to be angry or burning, displeasure, enrages, fury, heat, hot, hot-tempered, poison, rage, um, venom, wrath, wrathful. Uh, there is this picture that, that to be, uh, to have wrath is an expression of a physiological response to something that is offensive. And so wrath is holy hatred that God has for all who oppose Him, His law, and His people. You see, what we have to see about the wrath of God is that first, it is entirely relational. Again, it's good news to us who are in a saving relationship with Him. But when we push against or when we sin against Him, we are promised that in, in some sense that we will experience the wrath of God, not in a judgmental sense as His children, but in a chastening sense. The world receives a, a, a judgmental retribution for their sin in the wrath of God for all of eternity. But in Leviticus chapter 26, we hear this, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, now think about that in the antithesis to what we find in 1 John. If you abhor my rules versus if you guard my commandments. And aren't you grateful? There is a reason for worship if we just stop right here today. And rejoice in the reality that God, by the working of His Spirit, has given us not a heart of stone, but He's taken that away and given us a heart of flesh. Not that we keep the law perfectly, but that we have a heart that is sensitive to the Word of God, to the commandments that He gives. And when we come to one of those commandments, we don't abhor them. We say yes and amen. You are right, God, in all of your judgments and all of your ways. He goes on, so that you will not do all of my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fear that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursue you. Now this, if somebody looked at this, oh, this God is angry. No, He's loving. And He has set His affections upon His people. And He's a jealous God and He's not going to let them, he's not going to let them go. He's, he's going to pursue His, his people. Now, now some will come to verses like this and they go, oh. And so what they'll do is they'll take a verse like this and they'll soften off all of the rough corners of what God is saying He will do in His indignant wrath towards sin. We shouldn't do that. We should let those rough edges of realizing that God is imminently opposed to sin. You know who needs to be shaped and fashioned? It's not this verse. It's not the 470 verses that deal with wrath. It's you and I that need to be changed. You see, God has an unchanging Believe this, beloved. He has an unchanging disposition in His holiness against sin, all sin, all of the time. 
Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, I think part of the reason why we suppress the truth about wrath is because we come to believe that, well, that God's wrath is like ours. Because what happens is when, when we are angry and indignant about a physiological, when we have a physiological response to an offensive stimuli, we respond in ways that are gener- generally petulant, foolish, and intemperate. We lash out is what we do. I mean, we respond in foolish bursts of anger that later on we go, why did I do that? Why did I say those things? Why did I behave that way? I I mean, just as an illustration, take my precious wife, who is not given to fits of rage. As we think about what does it look like when humans lash out in anger? And gentlemen, feel free to apply this to your relationship with your wife and how you think she would respond. If, If you said... Man, I really love this piano. It is gorgeous. And I just love the way it sounds. And I I, I just kind of want to play with it. Sarah's not going to burst out in wrath about that. But if I say those very same things about another woman, (laughs) I won't have to cover myself in sackcloth and ashes because I probably will be ashes. I would experience the wrath of my wife. Now, I may be flattering myself. She may just say, she'll bring back. Um, Some of you remember, this is anecdotal, but some of you remember this story probably. I think I've shared it before. My friend Jorge that was here years ago. The first year we were here, almost 10 years ago now, we painted the stripes in the parking lot and Jorge had not learned how adamantly opposed to having your shoes on in the house that my wife is. He had also not learned how stubborn I am and how I kind of at times in an honorary fashion love to just poke at my wife. And uh, I had come home from painting that parking lot. My shoes were covered in bright, brand new shoes too. Bright yellow paint. I walked straight into the house. I am going to be the man of this house. Jorge's right behind me. We turn the corner in the living room and Sarah sees my safety yellow shoes on and she, the wrath of Sarah, could just as let loose. James Carl Clatworthy. And then I turn around for backup from Jorge. He's in the garage. And I get out there, he's like, she was mad. Amen, buddy, she was mad. Don't run, you may trip, and then she'll catch you. Like, what are you doing? Now, all of that to say that our wrath is, 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 uh, is different from, from God's wrath. He doesn't burst forth. And this gets into a conversation we're not going to have this morning about the impassibility of God. God hasn't changed in His disposition towards sin. Regardless of who is committing it, He is opposed to it. All of it and all the time. And some will say, but, but, but Jay, God doesn't ever express His wrath in any sense or any fashion towards us. Friends, that's not, let's talk to Ananias and Sapphira when we get to heaven about that. 
That there is, and I'm not saying, again, in a judgmental sense, though there's a whole question there that I'm not going to get into. But rather, what we see often is that God is actually, and here's, here's another part of the, friends, that we're not going to exhaust the wrath of God. I do believe that in a chastening sense that we experience it as we swerve. In fact, there's a whole sermon, if you want to listen to it, on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, that explains how the wrath of God applies to the believer. I preached it. You can listen to it or sleep through it. Either way. Um, But the wrath of God does have implication into our life. Most people, though, I think in a natural sense, look at the world and they go, but we don't see him like when someone sins just zapping people. So the wrath of God doesn't exist. That's because God's disposition isn't like ours. He doesn't He doesn't just lash out. In fact, the understanding of the DSI ray is that God has a disposition where we are, and not we in Christ, but where people are building up for themselves punishment on that day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed against all sin, against every uh, uh, offense. Romans chapter uh, Chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Do not presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenetrant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Psalm 7 tells us that God is angry every day. It hasn't changed. In any way. God's wrath is this overwhelming force against those who oppose Him. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And His wrath, at His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. This is not just some that God throws. It is His action against unholiness. And again, we see this in Ananias and Sapphira. We see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it in uh, when the Lord sent the plagues against uh, Egypt. And and friends, I I want you just to think about those categories. And some are going to say, but you're conflating saved and unsaved people. And I get all of that. And there is a need to parse out how the individual wrath of God is applied to each of those groups. That's not the point today. The point is to understand that our God is, is indignant towards sin. And He's going to deal with every iota of sin. But I want you to keep this at the forefront of your mind. When you read about the plagues that have come against Egypt, when, when you read about uh, Jonah and the chastisement there, when, when you get to a spot in your Bible and you see God's indignation towards sin, I want you to be reminded that no one has ever seen the wrath that will be poured out, with the exception of Christ, on the day of judgment. The wrath to come is a very serious reality. 
It is a very serious thing. And someone will, I'm sure, at some point think, but the Bible never says God is wrath. In fact, Jay, John says the, the very warrant that you come with in, in, in preaching First John, John says that God is love. And that is true. That is right. But what we need to see is what is true of the nature of God's wrath. It's actually the wrath of God, many have argued, and I would agree, is not an attribute unto its own. It is actually an expression of His love. So when John says God is love, part of what he is imparting to us is the reality of God's love. Because wrath is the appropriate action taken against anything that opposes His commands, His glory, or His people. When we show wrath, it's steeped in selfishness. But when God expresses His wrath, it is expressed in love and kindness, both for His own glory and for the good of His people. It's a good thing when God chastens you and I. You know, when you sin and you feel... I mean, we find in the Psalms, if you can sin... Well, we'll get there. I'll, I'll wait with that. Getting ahead of myself. Uh, one eminent theologian said that certainly God is not sorrowful or sad, but He remains forever like Himself in celestial and happy repose. When we speak of God's wrath, we're not talking about a pouting God. We're talking about a God who is opposed to sin and has never changed in that respect of His nature and character. God ultimately hates sin and friends, here's the reality. He's going to destroy it. He is going to have the victory over sin. And you know what I think about when I realize that truth? It's not first, ah, oh, go get them, God. It's praise the Lord, there will be a day when I experience that I am saved to sin no more. Amen. That is going to be a wonderful day. So the question then is, how do, we, how do we apply this reality in our lives that God is a God of wrath, that He is opposed to sin every day? And I want you just to think practically first uh, about the implications, and, and I'm not going to fill in all of this, but I think sometimes we get to a point, I'm not judging, or I'm not jumping into a political, philosophical debate. Maybe I am. Um, but we think about the implication of how our neighbor sins, how our culture is going, and there's an impulse in the Christian church to say that none of that matters. And I feel that impulse at times. But friends, when you realize that every action that is done in idolatry will ultimately result in the pouring out of wrath, that means I'm concerned in a particular sense that we don't walk in a way that is displeasing to God. Because God's going to deal with all sin. And if our culture continues to go in a direction that is opposed to God's created order, God is going to deal with that. And we see this all throughout history. As entire civilizations fall into abject immorality, God, God allows that to go on for a season. And here's where there's ambiguity and an entire conversation to be had. All I want to make a point of is this. We have to realize God is going to deal with sin. That's the first and primary 
um, application. In, in every area of our lives, God will deal with all of this. The first thing that I think we have to do then is we have to wait for the day of wrath. We, we have to look forward to the reality of that day. And as we're waiting, what we need to see and ask God to open our eyes to is, God, is it true that your wrath is not in any sense being poured out in our day? I thought about this. Uh, I was actually on a plane yesterday when I was thinking through this. That's a fun thing to do. Get on an airplane at 35,000 feet and start thinking about the wrath of God and that God deals with all sin. Woo, you're thankful for Jesus at that moment. Um, but, but here's the reality. Yes, God is restraining, otherwise we'd all be dead, His wrath. Uh, that is true. But is it true that we can't see His wrath anywhere? That His opposition and judgment against sin, is it not expressed in the world? And the answer is, no, it's absolutely expressed in the world. We see it every day. Open your newspaper. There's an entire section called the obituaries that deal with the fact that God punishes sin. Do you want to know how to test whether or not someone is a sinner? Wait around and see if they have a funeral. And 100% of the human race has fallen in death. And that is not... well. That's, here, here is what humanity has done with that, right? And we've all fallen into this. That's just the natural process of life. Jay, that's just a biological reality. Is it? Is that a natural biological reality of how God has orchestrated the universe? Psalm 90 I think would speak against that thought that death is just a natural process. Psalmist writes, you return man, that is God, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is in the past, as a watch is in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. It's interesting that the same analogy that is used for wrath in Isaiah 59 is used here as a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it is renewed. In the evening it fades and it withers. Friends, you would think on the heels of a pandemic where millions of people have died around the world that humanity might stop and go, wait a minute. In fact, there was a reality in human history that when a pandemic, pestilence, came against a people, they understood this doesn't escape the sovereignty of Almighty God. This is ultimately an instrument for His end and an expression in some sense of, of judgment upon the earth. That is an, a, a reality. But do you think that we've heard a lot of that uh, as we talked about the pandemic? The reality that death comes as a result of sin and in some sense the judgment of God? No. Instead, what have we done? We have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, which is exactly what Romans 1 says we do. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by 
their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we want to suppress the truth that we can't see the wrath of God in our day. But friends, we can. We can see it in so many areas. There have been times as I have pastored this church that people have slandered and gossiped and, and it's not just personal with me, but they have maligned the gospel of a holy God and then they have received their due reward. And you know what my response to it was? Oh, that can't be. You know why? Because we're just tra- trained not to think that way. Now, I don't think that we should glory in, in those things, but the reality is God is making a name for Himself. God is going to defend His gospel and in His way. And if you profess faith in Christ and you go after His gospel and you're flippant about His character, I promise you He deals with it. You see, we must take to heart and we must contemplate the anger, the wrath that God has against Sin, Nahum chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And so the question, and when we sang this this morning, beloved, as we were singing, Brian, I was thinking, ah, that's fantastic. That's the wrath of God in song right there. When we sang, my worth is not in what I own. And we came to the verse and we said, uh, we sang together, I will not boast in anything. I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Why are we boasting in that? Because the answer to Nahum chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 is Christ on the cross. He is the one who can endure the heat and the indignation of the wrath of God. And the only way that we are sheltered is not because we have a bake sale, we tithe and we're a good bad. It is because the holy God of heaven sent His only begotten Son to bear His wrath in our place. And only by taking refuge in Him do we have hope of eternity. And that should cause us, one, to rejoice, but two, to answer and really reckon with this question. Don't gloss over it. Have you taken refuge in Him? I'm not asking if you're a church member. I'm not asking if you're moral. I'm not asking how long your religious life spans. I'm asking, are you taking refuge, Psalm 91, in the shadow of His wings? Are you in Christ? Which is the entire argument of 1 John. John knows that if the church is to flourish, the only way it will happen is being in Christ. So, so, So do you take refuge in Him or do you hide in your goodness, your religion, or something else? Jesus was pretty clear about this in Luke chapter 3. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized of Him, you brood of vipers. Boy, there's an interesting way to get a baptistic service started. I mean, we're good Baptists. We'll baptize anything. Sadly. I think we've forgotten. When people like come at me, are you Baptist? I am. But what do you mean by that? (laughs) 
He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Psalm 2 uh, verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. It's not about our position. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now, ultimately, while Christ delivers from every drop of divine judicial wrath, the Father can be displeased with the actions and attitudes of His children. And Christians, too, must be aware of grieving the Holy Spirit. This, this is what I was talking about in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and it is seared into my mind uh, by providence, I believe, more than anything else, because when I, I preach this, a dear person to me the very next week lived in the antithesis of this verse and God dealt with them in wrath. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And the entire picture of that verse, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He's not saying what a lot of people say, which is that some version of don't grieve God because you know, you'll hurt Him. God can't be harmed. He's saying, be warned. God is unchanging. He is always against sin. And beloved, just because you are in Christ doesn't mean that if you swerve into a life of sin that God will not deal with it. In fact, remember, you are sealed by the Spirit of God. And if you sin, He will judge you in chastening and bring you back to the position that He desires for the day of judgment. He is saving all of us into the image of Christ. And if you live a life in rebellion towards His statutes, God is not setting back going, oh well. He is continually angry at sin every day and He's going to justly act in accordance with that reality. If you sin, He will chasten you. And somebody's going to ask, well, what if I can sin and it doesn't bother me? I mean, Jay, I, there's just things about me that I know I can send it. It's just who I am. Boy, I can't handle that. When people take their, the, the identities of their sin life and they, they make it who they are. God did not create you in your depravity. He is going to deal with that. And if you can rejoice and kind of make light of your sin and, and that God hasn't chastened you, beloved, I think you need to go back to the first question. And that is, have you taken refuge in Him? Do you actually know the living God as Savior? Because He has promised faithfully to chasten those that actually belong to Him. The, the other way we apply, I think, um, the, the wrath of God is this. It changes the way that we relate to other people. God's wrath, and, and here's the interesting thing. There are a lot of people, I think, that have mishandled the wrath of God. I'm sure I have. Um, and so when they talk about the wrath of God, they themselves, instead of actually trafficking in the wrath of God, they just, they're kind of petulant, angry, bitter Christians. 
Which is funny because that's just, again, that's human sinful fallen wrath, not holy, omnipotent, godly wrath, right? Um, And in our relationships, if we're actually leaning into what is truly the wrath of God, His opposition towards all sin, everything that opposes Him, His statutes, and His people, um, what ends up happening is not that we become bitter, but we become free. Because we realize there's a day coming that this sin against me, and whatever the thing is that you're dealing with in an interpersonal relationship, that thing's going to be dealt with. And what oddly ends up happening is instead of living our lives, you ever met a person who they've been wronged and maybe the wrong came decades ago and they can't ever forgive it? Like, they can't let go of it? And and maybe they're a Christian? That's because they don't understand and are not trafficking in, in an awareness of the wrath of God. Because at the end of the day, when we have the day of wrath before us, we're no longer those kinds of people who are just, man, we're just waiting for that one little tiny offense to be dealt with. Instead, we we look at the individual who's offended us and we realize, you're in danger of the wrath of God. And and I want to make sure that one, you're in Christ so you can take refuge in Him. And and two, that you're not offending Him. And so we start to deal in compassionate ways with people realizing that we ourselves are objects of wrath apart from the grace of God. The, the, the wrath of God radically, when we understand it rightly and we start to formulate it in our thinking, changes the way that we respond to sin against ourselves. And that's why Paul uses the wrath of God as not a, a thing to pump the church into bitterness, but into trust in, in the Lord in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, knowing that God is angry with the wicked. We can lay aside our own anger. And, then, and, and Paul says, Don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And in verse 9, for some of you who are thinking, so does that mean we just become the kind of church that's indifferent to sin and we just smile at everybody? No. Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, Let love be genuine, abhor." hate what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Our relationships begin to be molded in the awareness that God is always against what He's always been against. And God's going to deal with it. I don't have to be self-sovereign, and I don't have to go politically protest everything. God is sovereign, and He will deal with all things. Now, how do I relate to people in light of that? And it begins to change. I can't describe it in one Sunday. And in fact, I would say decades of sanctification in my own life as I've wrestled in the Romans 12 reality that this should change the way I relate to others. If I truly believe these verses, it means that I respond not in anger all the time, although I can be angry at sin, but I respond in a way that's redemptive and seeks the betterment of the other person. So again, God's wrath is the love of God expressed against all those who oppose His glory, His law, His people. And so then the question comes, Well, again, why verse 21? And how does this tie into wrath? I think that it's just lock solid about wrath, actually, the implication of verse 21. Because John is here warning of threats against the church throughout the entire letter. And then some people literally interpret verse 21 as though they, they will write entire commentary that verse 21 is disconnected from the rest of the... It's just kind of a, 
Oh, I forgot to tell you all. Don't idolize. By the way, that's a really big one. But it doesn't have anything to do with what I've been telling you all along. And, and that's not accurate. Think about chapter 4 and its connection to verse 21. Verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. John has dealt with the reality that false teachers are a great threat and that they will one day bear the wrath of God. Why does theology matter? Because the wrath of God is poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is against false teachers in and amongst the church. And He is against His people spewing false teaching. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Humanity will experience the the power of God that causes the earth to quake because of bad theology. Now, let's think about that for a minute and the way we think about idols. Let's think just for a moment about our theology of idolatry and the teaching we understand about that reality because we have to reckon with the way that we, most of us read this passage. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And what do we do with this? Often what we do is we will take this verse and we're going to take it as a, as a Sunday school lesson and we're going to go in and we're going to say, now children, you need to watch out for idolatry and sex and money and sports, success in over, over uh, preoccupation with your own virtue, not idolizing your family, your work, pleasure. Don't create idols for yourself. I don't think that's what John's saying at all. Now the reality is, in John's context, there was, and always is in every context, um, cultural idols. In fact, the, the picture on the screen behind me this morning is uh, a picture of what is believed to be a rendering of the temple to Artemis of Ephesus. That was the goddess that was worshipped when this particular letter was written. And I think that if John just wanted to deal with idolatry in the main in that sense, he would have said, hey guys, stay away from the temple to Artemis. But friends, here's the fact about, uh, about cultural idols. And that is that they all crumble. This is what is left today of the temple to Artemis. One single pillar. And here's what I think we have to be aware of in our theology of idolatry. Don't just think constantly downstream the impact. Do you know why we settle for sex and money and pleasure and all of the things that we think of when we talk about idolatry? You know why we settle for those things? Because we don't value Christ more. That's why. The reason why we cling to those things is because we find some sense of satisfaction in them. The reality is all of the fruit sins of idolatry, including the gross, obvious sins of idolatry in worshiping graven images, 
is that they will all one day fail us anyway. And we don't have to necessarily... That's intuitive. That's just obvious. But here, I think, John is pointing at idolatry not of all of the list of things. He's pointing first and primarily that we are idolaters in our mind. The people who were opposing the church were the Gnostics. They were dragging people away from the church and away from Jesus, not with stone carvings, but with ideas. Do you know what's going on in the church in America today? People aren't being driven into temples in America by the droves to worship Artemis. And I didn't put a picture of her up there for a reason. It's not a pretty sight. Um, What's happening is that people are being taken away by false ideas of who God is. A, A Jesus who merely is begging for you to come to Him. And then once you come to Him, you can live however you want according to your own conscience. You don't need to, and you don't need to worry about theology. That's just too brainy. That's odd. Because in the same place that, that, that uh, Paul tells us that we are to leave things to the wrath of God, he begins by talking about being transfo- transformed in the renewing of our mind. Friends, the only way that we stand against idolatry is by knowing the living God. Is by pushing against false teachers and false notions of who God is. Is God love? Yes, He is. But part of the expression of that love is that our God will judge all sin in His wrath. You see, the question really of idolatry just boils down to this. Do you love God? Do you love His church? Do you love the truth? Do you guard the commandments that He has given? And the only way... Do you know how you get to yes and amen to those four questions? By being a good Sunday school participant? By being born into the right family? By being a staunch religious person? By following the rules? And the answer to all of that is no. John's solution to idolatry is not tearing down statues and picking on the cultural idols. That's why I haven't preached this passage that way. The way that John deals with idolatry is pointing all throughout this letter to the reality that our only hope to escape idolatry and to fall into the category of being true worshipers in spirit and in truth is by knowing the true and living God. And the only way that we know Him is by digesting His Word. Turn back to chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That is, he's talking about Jesus here. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life. All of this is theological, by the way. Which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you know how it is that you rightly come to understand who Jesus is? 
It's not by your feelings. It's by understanding the actual authorial intent of the writers of all 66 books of the Bible. The way that we flee idolatry is by solid, clear, exegetical, biblical hermeneutics and understanding of the text under the empowerment, illuminating work of the Spirit of Almighty God. The reason why we take this seriously is, friends, there is no other way to come to know God but through how He is revealed by His prophets and apostles. And so the way that we, we can answer yes and amen, do you, do you love God? Do you love His church? Do you love the truth? Do you guard the commands? Is if we know Him. And we continue to grow in knowing Him. And friends, is there any other reason that we would love His church, that we would love His irrevocable truth, and that we would obey Him if we did not know Him and grow in loving Him? None of us would love Jesus apart from growing in those categories. So John writes in chapter 2, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in Him. You see, the greatest things that uh, the wrath of the greatest thing the wrath of God teaches us to do is to flee the idol of false teaching and to seek the truth about Jesus under the power, not of men, but under the power of the Spirit of Almighty God. Now I'm afraid that when I say that, some people are going to say, so we don't need theologians. No, because Ephesians 4 tells us that those men are gifts to the church and they are used to the ends of the church growing in their theological understanding of who Jesus is. Can I tell you this this morning without apology? And the weight of this statement is I wish I could convey it, and I'm sure you've experienced it in your own Christian life in a certain way, but the Jesus that I know today, what is today's date? December the 4th, 2022. He is more than the Jesus that I knew, and not more in His person and His essence. He's unchangeable, immutable, I'm not making that argument. He is more in my understanding than the day I first believed. Do you know what the tragedy of the American church is? That some people will go into that water and they will live their life on a planet that John tells us many false teachers have gone out, there's a lot of idols, there's all of these problems, and the day of their death, they have not grown in their understanding of who Jesus is. And their pastor's okay with it because he gets a paycheck. Friends, we must grow the reason we come in here morning after morning is that we would understand who Jesus is. And, and friends, let me just tie this together. I'll be done today. Do you know why we do the confession ultimately? I know we've made some pleas and, and, and Chad did a great job two weeks ago and David did a great job this morning giving us a, a clear picture. Do you know why it is that we come and confess our sin? What is the number one hindrance that you and I have in our day, 
in our understanding of who Jesus is according to his word. Let me ask the question this way. What is the number one hurdle between you and the word of, uh, and a right understanding of the word of God? It's your sin. Because naturally what we'll do when we come in on a Sunday morning, if we don't take time to acknowledge the reality that we are sinful, fallen people in need of the grace of God in every area of our life and especially in understanding His Word, is we won't come under the text. We will lord over it. And every time it was, is proclaimed, when it is clear, friends, it is not ambiguous that God sovereignly chooses who He will unto salvation. It is a theological controversy. It is not a biblical one. God is erudite without any equivocation about that reality in the text. Do you know why there's the theological controversy? Because people don't confess that they are sinners in need to see the truth of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead of coming away from the Bible with a clear picture of Jesus and worshiping, the reason why America is in the state it is today is because we have a poor hermeneutic and we do not submit ourselves to the Word of God to understand who Christ actually is. And so what we do is we create idols in the text. And generally, we are the idols. You want me to prove it? How many sermons have you heard on 1 Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath, where you turn into the hero at the end of the story? We are natural idolaters. And so the reason that we do this is that when we get to this, we've been reminded this is holy and we are not. And we don't just need J. We need, you know what the best recipe for church growth is? The Holy Spirit showing up and revealing Christ to His people. And that comes through the preaching and proclamation of the Word. So I'll leave you with this today. Little children, keep yourself from idols. For many false teachers have gone out into the world. And contrary to their message, our God is a consuming fire. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning acknowledging the weight of your holy wrath, just wrath. And, and Father, we come this morning acknowledging the reality that in areas where we believe wrath is too strong, the issue is not that wrath is too strong, it's that our understanding of our sin is too weak. Because when we see our sin for what it is, and we see it the way you see it, your wrath in its, in its, in its worst form is right. You are just in your opposition to sin. And we come to confessing that this morning. Father, we confess the reality that your wrath will be poured out against those who teach false things in your name. God, help us to flee from our vain intellectual idols, our misconceptions of who you are. And Father, this morning, if there's one here today that doesn't know you and has never taken refuge in Christ and in His saving work and in the reality that You've poured Your wrath out upon Him for all who would call upon His name. Father, would You open their eyes and show them the glory of Christ that they might flee to You in repentance and faith. And for those of us who are here this morning, let us not be the people that walk out of this, this room and forget what we have just seen in the mirror of Your Word. But let us go being convicted of the reality of our own vain idols of the mind and the idols that we pursue in our lives and let us lay them down for Your glory. And would You do that in our lives by the working of